Hello and welcome, everybody. It's time to get on your costume and check your notes from the night before. This is Minutes to Curtain by Miscreant Theatre Collective. I'm Andy Rogers. I am the executive swashbuckler of the Miscreant Theatre Collective. And tonight I am joined, hark, what light through yonder window breaks? It's Dylan McDonald, everybody. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for welcoming me. I Hark, hark to you, a hearty hark as well. <laughs> I welcome your welcome and hark yourself. <laughs> and you as well. Tonight's show uh, is about The Diviners by Jim Leonard Jr. And this accompanies a reading that we held uh, visible on our YouTube account, The Miscreant Book Club. Everybody go check it out. Like, share, and subscribe. All right, Dylan. So today we are discussing The Diviners, a play by Jim Leonard Jr. Uh, this is a play that was originally performed in 1980 at Hanover College and uh, first got its prof professional production with the Circle Repertory Company in 1980. Uh, this is a play about Dust Bowl Depression era America in a southern Indiana town called Zion. It's a very interesting play full of allegories and metaphors which we will absolutely discuss later um quite an interesting play as it's structurally very different starting and ending with elegies okay so dylan can you please tell us everything that happens in this play i am going to go ahead and put 60 seconds on the clock whenever you're ready that is not a clock that is an aluminum can Oh, and it's full of beer. Okay, well, I enjoy this beer. Please tell us everything that happens well, in this so, so it's full, right? Ish? Yeah, don't start drinking yet. Okay, tell me when. When? All right, I'm going to start drinking. Oh, wait, Go no, that was a question. Shit. Um, okay, um, so what we do first is we meet this shitty little dirty boy who's like a human water detector, right? And he, uh, and he finds water, but then he's also really afraid of water. And then he finds a preacher, which we should all be afraid of. Uh, I think, uh, finds a preacher who's no longer a preacher. Uh, preacher starts working for him in his dad's shop. Uh, preacher gets introduced around town. Uh, turns out there are some religious people in this town, which is named Zion. Probably no, uh, nothing else to think about there. So there are these two ladies who really think that he's going to be a preacher, even though he doesn't want to be anymore. Uh, but also, I think I mentioned that this is a tiny, dirty little boy. You have mentioned he is, it, yes. He is, he's a tiny, dirty boy. And I do not like the way that comes out of my mouth. <laughs> um, but so anyways, like any tiny dirty, dirty boy does, he gets uh, he got ringworm um, or something like that. Uh, so basically, there's this whole thing about this kid is he doesn't want to be washed because his mom died. Um, we're going to get a little heavy here. Somber. Don't drink mm. your beer. Oh, okay. His mom died in the water, saving him. That sort of near drowning also caused Buddy which is the kid's name, uh, to, to have some, some mental issues. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, he's described in the notes as, I, I believe, an idiot boy, which we wouldn't get away with nowadays. Insensitively, um, yes. But yeah, so he basically, he doesn't want to shower. CC showers is the name of this priest, ironically oh. enough. So this, this priest basically comes into town. All the women swoon over him, either because he's because he's beautiful or because he's a priest or sometimes both. Um, and showers <sighs> endeavors to wash Buddy. Basically, yes. um, he starts off by the end of Act One. He's washing yes. Buddy's feet as as a priest does, as one does. He, by by the end of Act One, he's he's washing Buddy's feet, but that's apparently not enough, and he needs to wash the whole boy. 
<laughs> wow. Also, I don't know if you knew this. Uh, did you know that Miller High Life is the champagne of beers? I can't imagine that we got sponsorship. Okay, but I feel like I'm at like four ounces, so I'm just saying pick it up. You weigh way more than that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, so anyways, end of act one, we finally got Buddy to wash his feet. Huge step. Um, but act two is is basically, that wasn't enough. Kids still got ringworm. There's a huge, there's a huge thunderstorm during which Cece finally convinces Buddy that he can at least breathe while it's raining. Because until that point, Buddy thought that he couldn't breathe if it was raining. Because water is water, yes. as he knows. And beer is beer. And as we know, water is water. So after convincing Buddy that he can breathe in water, the next day, he brings Buddy down to the river. No. Um, he just wants to wash the boy's feet with cold water, which the doctor said would help. But of course, the the religious of the group, Norma and Goldie, they think that this is a baptism. Mm-hmm. So they come down singing songs, basically singing the praises like, of the new preacher. Like that f- robotic fish on the wall. Exactly. Like, Take me to the river. Yeah, that's, what, that's how that goes. Thank you. I think you can get away with three seconds before we get copyright claimed. Okay. So um, I'm drink my beer then. <laughs> so he takes the boy um, down. They wade in the water. The women are, are singing their spirituals. And they believe that this is a baptism they're, witch- they're watching. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically what happens is Cece brings, brings Buddy into the river and then gets distracted by these women who are still trying to convince him that he is a goddamn preacher. Uh, he starts shouting at them, and Buddy basically just gets swept away by the river. Um, Cece tries to save him to no avail. Buddy dies. On either end of these items, we've got an elegy. So it turns out we knew from page one that Buddy was going to die. Mm-hmm. And they say the same basic things at the beginning as they did at the end. Okay, well, that's your time. Okay, so how did I do? I mean, you did okay. You vibrated your vocal cords and corresponded meaning to me. So it wasn't the worst I've ever seen. I mean, isn't that all that acting is? Am I not the best actor in the world? Okay, Calculon. Uh, so I, I really felt that this play, it was very moving is quite a tragedy. And, you know, it's always tempting to look at a play in the terms of like Shakespearean tragedy and think of like a, uh, you know, major character flaw, you know, hubris or or something like that, that caused their major downfall. This is hard to see as anything other than a tragedy because the person that died was kind of an innocent person. Um, unless you want to think of the tragedy as happening to CC showers, it's an odd sort of a play. The structure of the play as well was very interesting with the elegies sandwiching the, the action of the play. It, it feels very odd to be told, as you mentioned on God damn near page one, that, that buddy's going to die and then trying to convince yourself that it's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it is it is the first thing that the sort of minor character character Dewey says mm-hmm. is I, I had to tell his father that Buddy had died, something to that effect. And I I totally agree that the hardest thing about that is is hearing that and then still trying to mentally work your way out of that trap of like, well, what if he doesn't really die? Mm-hmm. You know, to to me, it's one of those. Well, maybe it's maybe it's just a misdirect. You know, it showed up in the beginning of the play so that you expect him to die, but something else happens. And there's even a section where uh, somebody talks about Buddy having been underwater for so long, you know, in that incident that killed his mom, um, that you, you you don't come out of something like that the same. 
And that seems to be the cause of his, you know, potentially his, his mental issues as well as his ability to, to feel and sense water. Um, But in that moment, I was like, well, maybe that's what happened in the story that Dewey's telling in the elegy is, is that, oh, this, this isn't actually him dying. This is him talking about that time Dewey almost died. And I was so convinced that he had died that I had to run to his dad and tell him right. your son's dead. But he he miraculously resurrected or something like that. Right. Uh, and it's not until you hit that moment of CC telling Buddy that he can breathe in the rain that you realize what's going to happen. And suddenly that hope is kind of broken long before the end comes. Yeah, I mean, that was the part that was devastating to me is, I mean, I would say that the end of the play kind of just washed over me as I read it, and even as I've listened to it. Good use of metaphor. Washed over? Washed over me. Let the rain fall down. Does anything ever wash under, do you think? (sighs) Depends on where your laundry room is. Who's who's Billy? Billy? Buddy. Buddy washed under. Yikes. Oof. Buddy doesn't wash anything. I do love that it was the third name you picked, though. <laughs> Billy. <laughs> Billy Bobby Buddy. Bicky Bobo. Bicky B. Bicky Bobo. Jesus Christ. No, so the real answer to that question is wash underwear. In the laundry room. Yeah. But, yeah. So I would say that, that the reason that the ending doesn't the ending specifically doesn't didn't hit me so hard was because when I heard Buddy say something to the effect of like water is water when he realized he could breathe in the rain and I could tell that he didn't know the distinction between water in the air versus water in the river I was like oh shit that's how he dies and it's heartbreaking yeah I mean even just with the reading that the Miss Green Book Club did check us out on YouTube and reading it by myself it it's it's such an impactful moment, and I can't I, I can hardly imagine what it would be like with the right technical skills and the the right actor in in a full theatrical setting. This could be an incredibly powerful piece, which is probably why it's maintained its popularity for such a long time. The first major topic of discussion I'd like to turn to today is about all of these goddamned religious metaphors. We held a short discussion when we did this reading. And the majority of the discussion we held was around the various religious themes and metaphors that this play had. So, first of all, can we discuss how weird it is to suddenly see a Jesus Christ foot-washing moment in a play from the 1920s? It's, it, it didn't come out of nowhere. But it's but the, the end of Act 1 where... Buddy's sister and Cece Showers are washing Buddy's feet. Could that be a more obvious Christ metaphor? Yeah, I mean, if you're trying to be uh, Matthew Perry from Friends, I could it. Oh my God! Could it be any more of a Christ <laughs> metaphor? Could I be any more Jesus? I mean, Jesus Christ. And I and I do appreciate you saying that they were goddamn. Uh, religious metaphors, because prophetic as it might be, um, I think that, yeah, I think that there is a lot of religious stuff that is just so on the nose in this play. And yeah, the the washing of the feet, even people who aren't at all religious know that as a a religious image. 
And I don't know that that's, I guess where I would, where I would disagree with you is I don't find it to be weird at all. I feel like there is so much of that that is, that is directly intentional that you're supposed to constantly be thinking about, you know, the, the religious implications of everything that is happening here. You know, the, the town is named Zion there, you know, you've got Buddy Lehman who, you know, who, who needs his feet washed. Yeah, CC Showers, who is willing to to go and wash his feet. And he's also just a preacher who doesn't want to do it anymore. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not particularly familiar with the Bible, but I got to imagine that the, the hesitant or reluctant prophet, it's everywhere else in society. I'm sure that it's in the Bible as well. I mean, yes, my understanding is that there are versions of Jesus that were hesitant and reluctant. Certainly him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, asking God not to make him die on the cross, seems hesitant and noncommittal. Maybe noncommittal isn't right. So it seems to me that this play really paints both CeCe Showers and Buddy as Christ figures in different ways. It, in some ways, you know, Buddy, with the parent up in heaven, with the ability to feel water, a life force, a Holy Spirit, if you will, and an innocent soul who does all he can to help people, even if he sometimes does things that make, make people mad. Um, you know, a, a person who has all the dirt and the dust and the grossness of society on him and he never gets to wash it away. This seems like such an obvious Christ metaphor. But on the other side of the coin, you have CeCe Showers, who is a much different kind of a Christ metaphor. Do you think, do you agree? Yeah, for sure. I think that I think that Showers represents again. He he represents the the older, um, jaded side of that sort of religious ideal. And I think that that CC Showers was so hard for me to get a read on right off the bat. I mean, here comes the stranger wandering into this into this scene. We've just heard in an elegy that Buddy Layman, who we've already begun to generate sympathy for, you know, he's. He's not all there mentally, but he can find water. He clearly seems to be the the crux that this story is going to move around. And then CeCe Showers, this random stranger from Kentucky shows up, doesn't seem to know how to do or be anything. And, it, like, I don't understand who... I, I don't see how you could trust CeCe Showers in the first act of this play. I mean, he walks in, he says he wants work, but he can't do shit. He can't do a damn thing. He he's and I mean from from Ferris Lamus' perspective, he doesn't know anything about cars, but he wants to work in that shop. Um, as Jerry Seinfeld once said, "And you want to be my latex salesman?" <laughs> he knows nothing about anything. Can't break down a carburetor. Doesn't know the difference between a V eight that would obviously go in a car and the engine that would go in a tractor. Um, and and yet it felt to me so so he had this thin backstory. Didn't expect to get pushed on. He he seemed like a con man at first. He nobody knew what what he was there for. He was full of shit. He didn't know anything. And then it felt to me like his fallback was well. The reason that I don't know anything about your town or your way of life is that I'm actually a preaching man. Mm. And and in that day and age, how hard would it have been to read the Bible a few times and know some passages? It struck right. me right off the bat that CC was up to no good. Mm -hmm. He started making trouble in the neighborhood. Oh, God. 
I could not help myself. Did he get in any fights? <laughs> Did his mom get scared? Is that why he was kicked out of Kentucky? That's what it was. <laughs> he was being damn. sent to Bel Air to hang with Will Smith. I just couldn't stop, and I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> um, but anyway, <laughs> he shows up. And I don't trust him, mm-hmm. and I am certain that like that he's going to be the reason that Buddy dies because he's a con man. He's going to get caught eventually, and he's going to like kill Buddy or do something to cause Buddy to die. Sure, in that's at the end of the play, which he did. It was sort of right, except for he turns out to have actually been telling the truth about the whole preaching thing. And, yes, and so that's just so hard to to reconcile with who he winds up being and how good of a man he's at least trying to be. Yeah. But, but I agree with you. His first appearance feels almost predatory. You know, as you, as you described, he sweeps in. Oh yeah. Not even just his first appearance. He actually feels like a predator for quite a bit, for quite a bit of the play. It's, it's, it's kind of astounding. Uh, I mean, uh, again, when we did this reading and in, in our discussion, there was the distinct feeling that his, amorous feelings towards Buddy's sister were far less than noble. It it seemed... Now, granted, this is an awkward part of the discussion. You want to couch that a few more times? I can. Okay. I'm sitting on a couch right now. Does that count? It's couch You are too. It's double couched. It's fine. Uh... It's worthy of mentioning that C.C. Showers is, I think, well into his 30s at least, and uh, Jenny May is described as 16, and that's the reason why they're, why C.C. backs away from the relationship. It is made pretty explicit in, in the story that he is basically twice her age, mm-hmm. and, that, and that comes up in the time where he eventually finally says, like, you know, no, this isn't going to work. You're right. too young for me. But the pages and pages of flirtation before that oh, yeah. aren't immediately erased by the fact that he didn't actually go through with oh, it. Oh, certainly not. And and honestly, when trying to convince Jenny May to participate in activities with him, using the pickup line, it's okay, just pretend it's Kentucky. I don't know. Would that work? Well, that will be your homework no. for next week yeah. is I need you to go to go to 100 women on the street and say, <laughs> act like it's Kentucky. See what happens. And see what kind of responses you get. If only the answer was vote out Mitch McConnell. Anyway, <laughs> so you bring up a very interesting point about the trustworthiness of CeCe Showers. He sweeps in like a stranger from the dust cloud. And seems predatory and uh, conspicuous. Well, and, and can so I hard- can I also just say that like when he's forced to say grace in the diner, his grace is thanks for the donut. Yeah, like that is it's not that is donut, two yeah. rungs below good food, good meat, good God. Let's eat. Is that two rungs? What would be the rung in between? I don't know. It's my ladder. That's why you should know. I'm currently building the ladder. Okay. I don't know the answer yet. <laughs> okay. But I mean, yes, you you make a great point. And and all of that goes into his backstory of, you know, growing up and seeing how great a preacher his father was and then him being a somewhat less good preacher or not feeling it and getting lost in thought while he's preaching. Um and then strangely giving away all the stray dogs that he had adopted right before he he up and left. The specifics of what caused him to lose his faith are never explicitly mentioned. But you do, 
or, or do you start to trust CC Showers at any point in this play? I certainly do. Um, and, and, and I think that the point where I where I started to believe who he said he was was at the, the end of Act 1 where he actually washes Buddy's feet. That didn't strike me as the move of some of a con man. And I don't know whether it's that's something that somebody would see as debasing if they weren't truly invested in this young boy's survival. Mm-hmm. Um, but like t- to me, that was by the end of the first act, we recognize he may not have been a great preacher. I think that's still up for debate. I feel like the implication was that his congregation liked him just fine, but that Cece perceived himself as worse than his father at preaching. And had also found found in his mind that he just wasn't invested in it. And, and I feel like that that was enough for me. But I didn't buy it until he actually took, you know, took Buddy, convinced him to let him wash his feet, and was able to successfully do it. And I think that partially that might just be because Buddy is our barometer. Hmm. He was Zion's barometer. That's, That's a stretch of a pun. I don't know that, but in <laughs> but, theater, but that's yeah, not a bad metaphor. But yeah, but Buddy is absolutely the barometer for who we can trust and who we can't. Yeah, and when Buddy trusts Cece, um, and we see that trust is worthy, mm-hmm. I think you have to trust Cece in that scenario as well. Okay, so yes, Buddy is the barometer. That is the perfect metaphor for this play. Um. Moving on to a slightly different topic, one of the other kind of major things that happen in this play, one of the major drivers of the action, is the way that people learn the wrong lessons or are deceived by appearances in this play. Oh, yeah. Honestly, All over the place. Right. And, and I think, honestly, a lot of the circles mainly around Goldie and Norma who are kind of the core religious seekers. They're trying to divine out their own religious feelings and and processes based on what's happening, and they're seeing miracles everywhere, right? Yeah, that's that's really the crux of the play is is they see they see Cece Ooh. taking buddy. Yeah, a lot of C's there. A lot of hard sibilant sounds in that <laughs> sentence. I love you so much. I know. Uh, they they see Cece ta- <laughs> taking. I can't stop it. Um, Cece is taking Buddy down to the river. Yes, right. To wash him, to yes. purify him, mm-hmm. and that is probably the most logical way for for those two to see. Like, oh, this is such a biblical meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, taking taking a taking a child down to the river to purify him is just, it might as well be the dictionary definition of a baptism. Yeah. And it's being done by this preacher who claims he's not a preacher, but Norma and Goldie obviously know better because they've been seeing, they have been seeing godliness in everything the man does. Yes. And that's just, and to me, again, that is the, how that, that is the reason that the ending is so devastating is that they have been looking for a sign from God throughout the entire play. Mm -hmm. And they've been seeing signs from God throughout the entire play because they're easy to find if you're looking for them. And particularly if you're interpreting everything 
as a sign from God, but like that, that literal metaphor of the baptism and them, them coming down to see it and believing that their savior is here to be immediately undercut, swept away. Yeah, no, by, I mean, by that, the I, death of Buddy Lehman, yeah. because, because they were there. I mean, but yeah, that's just, I think that's the most obvious and, and I think the most reasonable time the most reasonable that Norman and Goldie are ever are is during that point of the play mm-hmm. is they're looking at something that looks in all places like it's a baptism. But there are so many other scenarios where particularly the two of them see God where you know, or see religious metaphor where it isn't necessarily there or where it's it's only there if you are of that mind. Yeah, I mean certainly there's the scene where Buddy and CC mystically divine the number of jelly beans in a jar down down to the last bean by combining the first half with CC guessing and the second half with Buddy guessing and somehow it's perfect. And that's, oh, that's God's miracle coming down upon you. Well, and like the the, the funny thing there is that Cece starts with a number and Buddy finishes because it's the largest number he can think of. Yeah. Which is like seven. Mm-hmm. And it ends up being <laughs> yeah. perfect. But of course, again, that's just proof that you can see the proof everywhere you want to see it. Just like when um, Luella is riding her bike and crashes it and can't get up until the preacher walks by and says, get up, Luella. And she has the strength and the power to magically stand up. And it's a miracle. Praise Jesus. She's been healed. She, the hands have been laid upon her. I, it's hard to, 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 to decipher whether the author here is cynical or whether he's actually whether he's cynically discussing the way that people will will see proof in the things that they want to believe, kind of that um, echo chamber concept. What's well, uh, Bader Meinhof? Okay, yes. Uh, confirmation bias, basically. Okay, yes, exactly. Thank you. Um, or, or if the the author is trying to discuss sometimes the benefits of doing that sort of thing. I mean, certainly Luella got banged up, and she was able to eventually stand up. And the bike got banged up too. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things I like about that section is that it is only told in retrospect is we don't actually see that scene from CC Shower's perspective. Mm. We hear it as, I I want to say it's Luella retelling it to Norma and Goldie. Yes. And so it's it's secondhand, and it's it's the way that the sort of mythology happens. And so there is no there is no actual telling how much of that was embellished because of these ladies' both you know attraction to showers because again he's a very handsome southern gentleman as portrayed in the script, um, and as portrayed by Owen in our reading as well. To be he honest, was very handsome. He was, and he, he did a great job. He absolutely um, did. But also. That it's they they so desire to have a religious man and a preacher back in their lives that they are willing to immediately re-remember th- things that just happened um, as though he had some sort of spiritual impact on them. Mm. Um, but what I love about that scene is is that Bikras also leads to my favorite little bit of back and forth in the entire play. 
Uh, and it's right at the beginning of Act Two, where Basil is talking to Ferris about the wrecked Schwinn. You know, the the immediate uh, response to this to this bike crash. Um, obviously, he's got to take it to the mechanic and get fixed. He says something about like, you know, I woke up today and I just and I looked at my wife and said, you know what, I'm gonna go pick up the bike today. And uh, Ferris asks him, oh, how's she doing? He's like, well, I don't know. I ain't rid her in two weeks. And Ferris says, I'm talking about your wife. (laughs) And that is just, it's so perfectly my type of humor. Um, And also just just hilarious because it comes back around again at the end of the conversation um, where they talk about somebody says something about, well, she got real banged up. And again, the the punchline is, no, I'm talking about your wife. <laughs> like, and because to me, it's because with Basil, it's everything, whatever is right in front of you, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. And there is no subtext, there's no metaphor, um, but the perfect, the perfect sort of sly sexual innuendo mm-hmm. of I ain't rid her in two weeks, and it could be your bike or your fucking wife. <laughs> I just, I cannot get enough of that. And it's just so beautifully written there. And honestly, I feel like serves no other purpose than to directly satisfy me as a reader. Oh, lucky And you. so if there is a God, he made women like bikes? Is that, is that the solution to, is that where it wound up? I don't know. Let's find a woman and ask her. <laughs> Do you like bikes? Well, I will say that that led to probably our best joke from our, our pre-pro meeting, uh, which was, what's the difference between a Schwinn and your wife? Don't ask Basil. <laughs> so the other thing that really that really gets me about this whole appearances versus reality thing mm-hmm. is that Goldie is one of the people who is most aggressively trying to push the idea of getting a church back mm-hmm. and getting CC showers back preaching. And when she describes what she liked about having the church, it is entirely self-centered. It is all motivated by her own profit with an F. Profit. Oh. Is she talks about when when Sundays rolled around, practically the entire town came out. And I think she made more money at the cafe on Sunday than she did the rest of the days of the week combined. Is that the the church was the church was how she made her money. They came to get preached to, which does not sound like the appropriate sentence preached construction. at? They, they came to be saved. <laughs> okay. And they spent that money at the cafe. They came to be saved so that she could save. She needed to find a prophet so she could yeah. make a prophet. Prophet for a prophet. God, I love the English language. Pretty much bullshit, isn't it? It's totally the yeah. worst. But yeah, th- th- so that that whole idea of this person coming across on the on the surface level as being super religious mm-hmm. and and very pro church, but on the back end it is entirely about how she benefits from the existence of a church in right. Zion. And that that to me is, is another it's a great example of how something can look like one thing but the second you scratch under the surface it's a completely different thing. Kind of like how Buddy thought that you couldn't breathe underwater in rain the same as in the river, which is yeah. also a discussion of learning the wrong lessons here. That some people in this play, some of these characters, learn the wrong lessons 
all over the place and it has deadly consequences in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that's a scenario where two where our two main characters, I I look at Buddy and Cece as the the primary players in this play is when when Cece taught Buddy to conquer his fear, they both learned the wrong thing. What Buddy mm-hmm. learned was that water is water yep. and that he can breathe in water. And that was his ultimate downfall. What Cece learned is that he could get Buddy to do something that Buddy didn't originally want to do. <sighs> and the what Cece learns, and again, to, so to steal from Jurassic Park, is he was so concerned with whether he could, he didn't stop to think about whether he should. God, how good would Goldblum be as Cece Showers? I don't know if he can do a southern accent, but... Oh, he's Jeff fucking Goldblum. He can do what he wants. Is that his middle name? Isn't it? <laughs> JFG. <laughs> but but yeah, to me, that is the crux of, of the devastation of the final scene, is that Cece was so worried about, about making this boy better through any means necessary that he didn't realize that the means could also make him worse. That by convincing Buddy that he could breathe in rain without specifying that that didn't mean he could breathe underwater, he doomed that kid. So ultimately, what Cece learns is that he can get Buddy to do something that Buddy doesn't want to do. Yeah. And to me, this is kind of one of the central questions of this play and of reading it and what the tragedy is. Because, you know, looking at historical plays, there's the main characters often have a certain fatal flaw. Um, Hubris, jealousy... Etc. to name a few. Um, it, sometimes it's hard to look at CC as having displayed any kind of a fatal flaw, except I think his fatal flaw in this that makes it a tragedy is his anger. Because from the diner where he's refusing to pray for the donut until it creates a thing, to his confrontation with Ferris, whatever it was that caused CC to lose his faith or decide to stop preaching, even if he still has his faith in whatever measure it is. He's an angry man, and he refuses to to discuss why he won't preach anymore. And so ultimately, what it comes down to is that when Buddy dies, it's because CC was so angry at the two women trying to make him into something he didn't want to be that he became neglectful of the person he was trying to help and save and care for. It was his anger, essentially, that caused Buddy to die. Yeah, I mean, that, that, is, that is a huge issue, is that he is so upset. He is so upset about the idea that he's going to be forced to do something that he has already consciously decided to give up, that, that being denied that ability to give it up is what upsets him most of all. And I think I think that, that 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 kills absolutely. But I mean personally, I, I think the question really is, in this tragedy, who is ultimately responsible for Buddy's death? Right. And I think you could make the argument, and and I think you just did, and you might elaborate on it, that Cece is primarily responsible. Mm-hmm. And I think that you come away from this. You mentioned earlier about wondering whether this was intentionally cynical. Or not. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was just incidentally cynical. And I think that a lot of it rely, relies on your personal beliefs. So I think that what what you realize when you ask yourself, 
what is most devastating about Buddy's death? What is the worst part about his death? I think that when you come to that answer, you learn a lot about yourself and your own beliefs. Because I find myself seething over Norma and Goldie making this imposition on what could have been a beautiful moment even without God. And that's the thing that that gets me is that the simple act of getting Buddy Lehman to walk into the river willingly and and to wash his feet and to cure him of this ringworm to get him to get over this huge this huge fear that he has that you you could call a phobia except for it's what killed his mom mm. that getting him to do that should have been enough and yet these two you know to some degree self-centered women who thought that religion was the only thing that needed to have that needed to matter had to insert themselves into the scene and interrupt it in such a way that it ultimately led to Buddy's demise. Yeah. They couldn't have possibly known that, but by forcing the issue and by making it religious. Combined uh, with CC's anger. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing is you want to say combined with CC's anger. I just want to be mad at those two. I just want to be mad at those religious women who couldn't let shit be. Speaking of letting shit be, one more small tangent here regarding Goldie and Cece. Uh, Goldie has this wonderful quote talking about how there's no way that Cece could have quit being a preacher because it's something that you can't let go of. You can't stop being a preacher even if you stop preaching. Goldie sure does seem to do quite a lot of preaching herself and doesn't seem to be a preacher. There are plenty of the characters in this play that sort of espouse uh, their belief system in a way that could be described as preaching, even CC. What makes a preacher a preacher? I think you're going to get a lot of different answers to that. Um, and, and again, it depends on how closely you want to adhere to the the dictionary.com believing. Um, <laughs> but when I, when I think about, when I think about preaching, I think about being a conduit for God. I think about being a prophet and, and I want to introduce what we hope is a recurring segment here, uh, which is what we call our inappropriate quote of the week. Inappropriate quote of the week. Yeah. It, and, and this is entirely safe for work. Um, but if you're listening to a podcast at work, I hope it's not on like a speaker or something. Seriously, get headphones, people. What is this? Twenty. And also, if you're at, if you're in the office right now, go home. <laughs> There's a pandemic a on. Pandemic. <laughs> uh, but so my my inappropriate quote of the week comes from simply something that I could not stop thinking about. Um, as soon as I first saw this idea, this this refusal to believe who CC Showers was, that he said one thing. And Norma and Goldie perceived it as, oh, this is the word of God. Mm -hmm. And it comes from like four or five episodes into the first season of King of the Hill. Um, and Mike Judge, I hope Bear with me. And bear with me is uh, Hank Hill is working on his truck and like the horn is just going off and going off. Uh, and Dale Gribble, if, if you don't know King of the Hill, just watch King of the Hill. I'm not going to explain this to you. D That's Dale a Gribble, great life tip. Thank you. <laughs> just watch King of the Hill. Uh, Dale, Dale Gribble comes over like around the fence and is like tying a robe on and is like, God damn it, Hank, don't you know that I need my beauty rest? And like with one flip, flip flopped foot just kicks the truck. And at that moment, the horn stops. 
And Hank looks up and says, don't you dare try to take credit for that. And Dale Gerberl says, it was not done by me. It was done through me. <laughs> and I and I could not stop thinking about that quote as it related to everything happening in this play, yeah. particularly from the perspective of Norma and Goldie, is that all of the things that happen, Buddy being able to predict the rain, CeCe showers showing up and being this calming influence, and, you know, being able to, you know, questionably heal Luella immediately from her her bike. All of these kinds the of things, just yeah, they all just stack onto each other. As oh well, CeCe showers is clearly the mouthpiece for our Lord and Savior. He is not doing these things intentionally, but God working through him is here in the form of CC showers. And so to me that is that is what that is what a preacher is to the people in this play. Mm-hmm. I what do you I think? you make a strong case for for what the role of a preacher is. And I think that honestly this comes down to even the title of the play the diviners. Um you could make an argument that a diviner someone seeking something someone seeking to to find faith or safety or comfort or any of that is applicable to all of these characters but the focus on them preaching or espousing their beliefs they all do that to a greater or lesser extent uh i don't think it always is divine with all of these people i mean Certainly CC gives his monologues about how God is in the trees and the sky and the air and God created the rain that killed Buddy's mom, but also to make trees grow, that there's still God in all of that. But at the same time, you also have Basil who respects the earth too much to use a tractor on it because that just disrupts the earth. Um the, the the preaching I don't think is always specifically religious, but you have you make a very strong case about like the central focus of Goldie and Buddy, oh sorry Goldie and CC, and and the conflict between the deeply held belief and the idea that it must be shared or that it like that should be forced upon someone or or, or something like that because I I mean that honestly is kind of. Maybe that's not a difference between CC and and Goldie is that they try and force what they believe onto someone else. The difference is the audience there. They are just preaching two different forms of of belief, ideology, religion, etc. It it just so happens that CC happens to be preaching the direct antithesis of what yeah. Goldie is looking for. So is that is that one of the meanings of this play? Be careful who you listen to. Or be careful what you get angry about. Yeah, I I think that it is, but it, I mean it's less about anger, and it's just it's more about not not letting your ideology, um, you know, don't ever fall too in love with what you think. Hmm. Another thing that I I want to talk about, and in, in when we talk about divining, is this this sort of brief thing about dousing or mm-hmm. or divining or water witching. Um, I don't even know if people are particularly familiar with water witching or dousing anymore, but it's 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 this old practice of like holding a, a Y forked branch of like birch or something like that and holding it out in front of you and walking through a field 
And the idea is that you hold it and you really think about it and you sort of you think about wanting water. And then when the birch senses water below the soil, it will like dive towards it mm-hmm. because this this wood, its its main desire is to get water, is yes. to, to be replenished. And it's obviously absolute bullshit. Yeah, obviously. And the the so the the more scientific explanation for it is that holding a dowsing rod or anything like that, it's it's more liable for you to be more aware of small, like almost even subconscious twitches of your muscles. And so this this idea that like, oh well, if you twitch at this particular point, mark it here and then dig for water. Right. Um. But it's it, there's no actual science to it, and there's no there's no actual way while like dousing to find a well any better than by random chance. Sure, but there is this idea that while dousing, you know, it, almost like having a Ouija board, is everything that you're doing. There's a mindfulness to it, and that you are enhancing these sort of subconscious urges, muscle movements, whatever, and then you are then finding meaning within that that move. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 one of these things where by simply stopping and focusing on something, you can find meaning in it. I mean, realistically that's what we're doing in this podcast. Yeah. We're talking we are spending way too meaning. much time thinking way too deeply about some words on a page. Yeah. And coming to a meaning that we find profound, it is no different. Did I just totally uncut, undercut the point of this podcast? No. Us, but but also us giving a shit about thematic meaning is exactly the same as looking for water while holding a stick. Fuck literary research. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I know we're about wrapping up here, but I I really have to go to the bathroom, and I mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you a question real quick while I do that so you can stall for time and just like give you a real easy softball um, something where somebody with such a massive intellect such as yourself can easily just expound on this for minutes on end and it's a really easy question I'm feeling there's probably only one good answer okay and and that question before I I run out of the room is was Buddy Lehman better off as an aquaphobe I think that there is an argument to be made that had Buddy Lehman never partially drowned in childhood uh, and then not drowned again and died, he probably would be in a better position life-wise. However, it's understandable that you could see this character and attach to this character and truly want the best of them. And despite being told that they're going to die... You don't want them to. That's a very human reaction. It's very understandable. And it's a great character choice to not want the main character to die. However, this is not always the case. You know, sometimes characters have to die. Uh, You know, if Boromir uh, hadn't have died, would Frodo have made it to Mount Mordor? (laughs) Mount Doom! (laughs) You fucking dick. <clears throat> Sorry, that was an emotional moment for me. So, so I think that time it, that that character's whose name you forgot didn't <laughs> might not have made it to that mountain whose name you forgot. Well, that's all the time that we have tonight. 
<laughs> Thank you, Dylan, for joining me tonight on uh, Minutes to Curtain by Miscreant Theater Collective. I can't believe you talked me into this bullshit. Please check out the Miscreant Book Club on YouTube. Uh, like, share, and subscribe. It's uh, always a pleasure having you, and you better go talk to the assistant director to make sure that they know that you're here, uh, because this has been Minutes to Curtain. Thank you all. Have a good night. Minutes to Curtain is a project of the Miscreant Theater Collective, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. This was written and produced by Dylan McDonald and Andy Rogers and directed by Aaron Slemak and sometimes Dylan McDonald. <laughs>